You're listening to The Film File, your favourite film show, brought to you by Film Geeks. Every week, we're big across the world. We're big everywhere. Roll music. Hello and welcome to The Film File, delivered by your favourite film geeks. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And welcome to the show. Uh, A show which means now that is reaching foreign shores. We always knew that, of course, hello Utah. Uh, We always knew that we were uh, expanding our, our fan base, but due to our allegiances or alliances or the fact that we get played every week, on No Barriers Radio, which you can find on the internet, we are now reaching an international audience. So um, check out um, our No Barriers Radio cut down show if you want to get rid of some of this, you know, the waffle, as it's <laughs> pleasantly called. I like to think that our audience on the podcast like our waffle. Um, also, like that the one hour edits that are cut down, I usually have to trim a few bits of news and sometimes take out one or two reviews just to get it in the time. So... If you're already a podcast listener, you know, stick with the podcast because you're getting yeah, all this yeah, juicy goodness. But be, by all means, uh, if you just want a quick bite to listen to, pop over to um, No Barriers Radio and give it a listen for the one hour one on a quick journey. And then yeah. come back and listen to the main podcast. and You'll be able to hear the, the difference that we get between them. It, it, it's almost like two different shows. It is like the uh, uh, this was the uh, late night show and and that one's the uh, um, Access All Areas show. But um Needless to say that we're doing really well with it, and um, the, the the whole reason initially behind joining No Barriers was was uh, as a favour. We're doing a favour to a friend of mine who runs um, uh, trafficking on the uh, on the channel, and um, we jumped on it, and it's proving to be very successful. We're getting a lot of a lot of listenership from across the world, and uh, so hello, rest of the world, if you're joining us via the um, via the radio show, welcome to the podcast. Yep, a very big welcome. I want to throw in a quick uh, apology for some of the information that I gave last week with regards to upcoming TV shows. Better Call Saul is not this coming week. Uh, it's actually another two weeks so away. This is what happens when Vodzilla, which I normally use, haven't got the following month's listings up yet. They are a fantastic source. They are always accurate. But when we were recording last week, they hadn't quite gone live with the April listings. And so I had to scramble around to find somewhere else. And I used a, a well-known, um, it's, it's like, it's, it's like a, a website which is about geeks and they live in a den. I can't quite think who they are. <laughs> no, no um, idea. They haven't got me there. Lost me. And they had a, this is coming to UK Netflix this week, This and everything was wrong. In future, I'm just going to wait until Vodzilla have got their information before I start confirming for definite. Or if I can find like another source that's more reliable than, um, well, that, 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 Warren of Nerds, uh, something like that. I don't know. So when does it open, in Andy? When are we getting? I believe on? it's. I believe it's around about the eighteenth of this That's month. Right. So we still got a couple of weeks. So I will let you know on the week that we're leading up to that one, and I'll be accurate this time. But we're back with Vodzilla this week, so this week's listings will be more accurate. Jolly good. Elsewhere, I mean, have you seen the news this week? And this is, this might not mean much to people in are international territories, but I'm sure there's some people around the UK who would have known how important the Lead Mill nightclub is in Sheffield. Yes. Now, for those who, who don't know, uh, the Lead Mill is a, is, a, is a club that's been around for nearly 40-odd years uh, and put together yeah. by very well-meaning people initially to create a venue, a live music venue, that's also 
uh, got a club side to it, a, a cultural art side to it. Uh, it's recognized as one of the best venues in the country. Uh, many bands got their start there, did their first tour there. I've seen numerous bands. I've seen stand-up comedy there. I've been to the club yeah. nights. It's a huge part of, of my growing up. And interestingly, down to some um, infuriating news. I'm going to let you uh, talk about it more explicitly. It's made uh, uh, national news in the UK. Yeah. The landlords who own all the property around there that the lead mill is part of. And the lead mill, for those who've never been to it, it was an old warehouse that they converted into a nightclub. And it's got like a very industrial kind of theme in there. And it's iconic. It's atmospheric. And yeah, it is a part of the history of Sheffield. And the landlords have have given them just under a year's notice that they're going to be evicting them, which I saw it on the news yesterday. The landlord was saying that it's because there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order to renovate, et cetera, around the area, uh, which Lead Mill themselves have responded with like images of gigs in place saying, does this look like it's a place that's falling down? It's shocking. I mean, for me, the Lead Mill, when I came from Liverpool to Sheffield to study, it became a key part of my student life. All the student activity was around there because I was at Sheffield Hallam and I was at the building that was just directly opposite the lead mill. So it was literally on the doorstep of where I went to university. So I got to know it and it was at least two or three times a week. I'd be in there for one or two different nights. They did great like standard student nights, like your 80s discos and stuff like that. But they also had like good like rock nights and like really good mix of different music. The two separate rooms meant that there was always something different toned in one room to the other. And as I grew up and I've got to that age where nightclubs aren't my thing, the Lead Mill has now become one of my favourite venues for catching small gigs by up-and-comers, rising stars and indie acts. Cheap to get in, really good atmosphere in there, and there's nothing better than being in that little side room with a small indie act who are just amazed that they've got a few hundred people to play to and being part of that energy. When my, My first gig that I went to after lockdown had finished which was when i went to see zuzu and that was at leadmill the one of the last gigs that i went to before lockdown was sophie the giants at leadmill and i've got a lot of recent years memories of great gigs and great atmosphere at that place i don't go there for nightclub anymore but i pass it every night when i'm going for my bus home from work and it's always got a line of people around the block this will be a devastation to the city to lose such an iconic and important venue well yeah i mean it's 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 given the start for so many artists it's also given the opportunity for bands to do secret gigs and things like that yeah or special releases i saw of all people numerous i've seen numerous bands there i've never played it funny enough that's the one venue i've never played i saw mel c out of the spice girls when she launched (laughs) her solo show there it was a secret gig. Not so secret, but it's a secret gig. Um, it is. It's a, it's, a, it's an amazing, absolutely amazing venue. It seems as though the landlords have got greedy. They've been yep. talking about, yes, but we will turn it. It won't. It'll remain a music venue. Well, let it just remain the lead mill then. Um, they've got, they haven't got access to the name. It's copyrighted to the organization behind the lead mill. Yep. Let's hope that uh, cooler heads prevail. There's still chance, I think. And my optimistic side says there's there's still chance. I think the outcry on, uh, over, especially on national radio, Radio Four, it was on the other morning yeah. talking about it. Then I think that uh, uh, hopefully uh, and, and quite rightly, the landlords will be seen as the villains of the piece and and uh, and declare their intention to to leave it alone because you know it, it would be sad. And I think if the lead mill does go, hopefully the people 
behind it will will get their act together and and find another venue and call it the lead mill because i think people will boycott the intention if, yeah. if that's there but i was in the lead mill when it first started to open and at, at that point it was it was rehearsal room band rehearsal rooms and it was a mess of a building and and the love that's gone into that building is, is incredible yeah. so as i said let's hope uh, cooler heads prevail um, and let's hope some of the people who played there really lend their weight to uh, um, supporting it because it, it deserves to be supported and as it's getting harder and harder to find live music venues in the city, in any city, then this is this is a paragon of virtue when it comes to live music and live live entertainment. The club side alone brings people in from across the country. So last week's Twitter challenge. Yes, our James Bond question. The question was: Before Lazenby was cast as Bond, when Connery was departing, how many you know many other people were considered? And I picked out four names who were four of the names that were most most likely to have been considered and put them out on Twitter. And the names were John Richardson, Oliver Reed, Anthony Rogers and Terence Stamp. Now, personally, Terence Stamp for me. Terence Stamp thought, I think, in his prime would have been a marvellous take on Bond. I voted on it and I voted John Richardson because I saw uh, a screen test that he did. So I think it's on YouTube mm. that you can see. It was part of a documentary about uh, finding Bond. Uh, and John Richardson looked really cool really really cool uh but um not particularly that point much of a household name and again no neither was lazenby in reverse order anthony rogers got the lowest amount of votes john richardson got 18.2 percent terence stamp got 27.3 but the overall winner with 54.5 percent of the votes was oliver reed we have to realize that this is oliver reed before his uh drunken yeah, yeah, yeah. mess years i mean this was oliver reed at at his pinnacle. I still don't see it. He's too too bulky, too bulky for Bond. Not suave enough for me. He's a bit um, rough edged. Yeah, which dangerous. I know that Daniel Craig one is a bit rough edged, but I think he's rough edged with a, a sly charisma. Whereas Oliver Reed played that rough and tumble character yeah. a lot more. An interesting result there. Have you yeah. got us another question? For I this week? do. Now we talked about uh, which films deserve sequels, in our opinion. Yeah, but which films would you reboot? or remake not the obvious but your reboots or remakes what would you go for uh, a remake now everybody sort of hears that term and decries it instantly oh remakes awful not always not every remake has been awful uh some have added something new to it so our well, looking... deep dive today is going to be one very good example exactly so i mean for every uh, remake which is unnecessary you get an oceans 11 or you get the yeah. thing or you yeah. get the fly the fly absolutely so not all remakes or reboots are unnecessary but what films would you remake or reboot if you had the opportunity i have one to get the ball rolling and it's an unusual one. and i think sometimes the best remakes have come out of nowhere where you go ah I'm, yeah i think i saw that movie and it's a roger moore film called The Man Who Haunted Himself, directed by Basil Dearden. And the premise mm. is great. After a car accident, Roger Moore suddenly discovers that he has a doppelganger, a duplicate, who does all the things that he can't do. He's kind of a, a bit weak, but the uh, the doppelganger is, is charming and uh, effervescent and a little bit of a rogue and everything that, that the original character isn't. And I just think it's ripe, absolutely ripe to be remade. Uh, and, and done in a, a new and, and take that idea of doppelganger even further. So that gets the ball rolling for me. What would your 
reboot or remake be this week's Twitter challenge. Okay, I'll throw that one out as usual towards the back end of the week to give a few days worth of feedback. Yeah, it's just a bit of fun. It's a bit of fun. We, we like to know your opinions and this is one way that we get them. The other way is we can go around to the house and kick down your door and ask for your opinion, but we'd rather just do it on Twitter. It's yeah. a lot easier. Yeah. Um, you know, we, and we had some great, great answers, uh, as we said last week on uh, on the sequels. So, yeah, you know, who, uh, what would you remake? What would you reboot? Uh, is it a film that is deservedly one because the original wasn't that that good? Or is it a, a classic that's kind of a bit being lost, like My Choice? Or something you think is, is timely, is ready to go, would work better in this generation? Now, as I said, not every remake, not every reboot is a, is a failing. Some have turned out to be better than the original. Some have turned out to be much worse. I'm looking at you in particular, Total Recall. You were unnecessary. It could have, that, that's, a, that's a remake that could have been so much better if it yeah. had have tapped more into the book. than yeah. which it, They tried to claim that that's what they were going to do, but then it turns out, no, they were just going to reference the Arnie film with lines of dialogue mm. lifted from the film, not from the book. It, bait and switch. Because yeah, there's some news. There's some reboot news when we, we get to the news. And talking of which, what is on this week's show? Well, we're going to be doing a deep dive into one of Andy's favourite films. And is it a remake? Is it a reboot? A continuation of a series? We'll know by the end of our deep dive, we'll be looking at Dread. Andy is doing the Lord's work again this week and is reviewing. Oh, well, I've got a good, I've got a bad and I've got an ugly. You can, you can decide amongst yourselves as to which one's <laughs> which, but I've seen Sonic 2, I've seen The Bubble, and I've seen Morbius. And there was a dramatic pause there. Yeah, that might have been it, your I, giveaway. Because I had to swallow my vomit. <laughs> I think, I think, <laughs> Andy, I think you've just given the whole game away on, on that one. I, I wouldn't worry too much about people guessing which film you, you've hated most this I week. I apologise in advance. For if it turns into a bit of a rant when it gets to Morbius. <laughs> uh, so you might find that on a, an extended version. Certainly won't be on the radio version. Uh, we're going to both be looking at the first episode of Moon Knight, which landed on Disney Plus last Wednesday. Yeah. But before any of that, we're going to start with the news. Kicking off the news this week is the box office. So you've got an indication now of what Andy thinks about Morbius. Uh, I've not seen a good review for it anyway. However, it's the kind of film that we know that everybody will come out in the opening weekend for. So Andy, is it in the number one position? Yeah, um, in the US, Morbius has gone straight to the top spot, although it's not a great win having only taken $39 million in its debut weekend, which given the, the franchise that is connected to Venom and Venom Let There Be Carnage, which opened with $80.3 million and $90 million, um, on their respective starting weekends, it shows that this film is going to struggle somewhat, and it's not necessarily going to have much of a carryover in the coming weeks. It's currently running at a worldwide box office of $84 million on a $75 million budget. Normally, it'd be looking to maybe get about $200 million and be considered to be breaking even. But bear in mind that this film was originally due out in July 2020. And so the multiple delays, the re-editing, the reshuffling of schedules have cost this film. So it's hard to track exactly how much money it needs to make in order to be considered a success. So clearly what happens with a, with a film like this, and, and the reviews have been generally terrible, 
across the board. I don't think I've seen a decent review for it yet. Is the fact that fans will go out in the in the opening weekend and and see a movie now if Marvel's connected on that title and it only is a it's not an MCU movie no matter how hard they're going to try to to pump it as one but um, fans are going to go and that's why you get opening big weekends on on genre films and then they do if they're not picked up by the general public have a tendency to die off within the first week sometimes the second week so uh i'm guessing a huge huge drop by next week once the curiosity has uh, gotten out the way because this weekend we've had a lot of people who have been coming in saying well let's see how bad it actually is they're, they're watching it just to see if the critics are right those people are won't be coming next week. No. You won't get that same audience next week. It's going to, I reckon, a significant drop-off next week. It's not boding well for the future of the um, Sony Spider-Man universe, the SSU, if they're going to keep delivering films that disappoint people. Venom did okay. Venom did pretty good. Venom 2 didn't do as well. And it's going to ever decline throughout the more that they churn them out. And this is the, this is the worry. Because for all the good stuff that, that DC and Marvel are doing, when you get the substandard versions, and Marvel has no control really over anything that Sony does apart from it has, it has a skin in the game for, for Spider-Man. Yeah. You know, it's the weaker aspects. And this is what destroys every genre. It's the yeah. weaker films, the ones that annoy the audience, that, that sully everything else. So if, you know, the often muted, are superhero films dead? Well, these are the films that are going to kill a genre. Happened in westerns, happened in musicals. You get the sub-level ones, and the audience grow weary because of those. And almost to some extent, the quality ones get pushed out by, by the weaker ones. It's, it's historical across all movies. The danger is that for your general audience, they don't know the difference between Sony, Spidey, Spider-Man Universe, and the MCU. No. So they just see the Marvel logo and instantly think they're all connected. Yeah. And if these films continue to get churned out and disappointing audiences, it's going to put people off the future of the Marvel Universe itself. Well, and I'll go even further to say, Andy, I think most people don't really know the difference between DC and Marvel, the majority of the general public. Elsewhere in the US box office, The Lost City opened this week in the US for 14.7 million. Uh, the Batman is still holding position in third place with 11 million. Uncharted still still clinging in there with 3.7 million. And anime Jujutsu Kaisen Zero is still in the top five with another two million. Here in the UK, completely different affairs as we got Sonic the Hedgehog 2 a week before everyone else. And that opened at number one this weekend with a £4.9 million opening. It's 5% higher than the original film's three-day opening in February 2020. In second place, Morbius Manages to scrape 3.2 million, including a Thursday previews. Uh, the Bad Guys, the new animation from DreamWorks, debuts at number three with 2.2 million. At number four, the highest hold over this weekend, of course, The Batman, is still staying within the top five in the UK as well. An additional 1.1 million total added on to its overall haul. Ambulance uh, retains a position in the top five in the fifth place, only taking 272,000. It's likely not going to be sticking around much longer. So that's the box office. What have we got news-wise, Andy? Because for me, it's looking, I don't know, is it? it's looking a little bit uh, weak this this week it's similar to last week that there's there's a scattering of news uh, but the majority of the news that's dominated the media this past week is the fallout from that slap heard around the world well i say <laughs> around the world it was heard everywhere except for the us where they cut the audio yes will smith smacking chris rock at the oscars 
has dominated headlines for one thing or another over this past week, as everyone's speculated on it, discussed it, questioned it, and so on. I mean, the Academy themselves waited until late this week to claim that they'd asked Will Smith to leave the ceremony, but apparently, according to them, he refused to leave. And, you know, when you're running a ceremony like that, you can't just cut the audio and cut the video and actually physically remove them from the building before you cut back to it. Yeah, remember this is a live show as well. You go you go up to someone and say, we want you to leave. They go, no. You go, all right, then you can stay. In a statement issued by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, they said, we would like to clarify that Mr. Smith was asked to leave the ceremony and refused. We also recognise that we could have handled the situation differently. However... Other sources suggest that this wasn't necessarily the case, as that the other sources are saying that Smith's publicist was the one spoken to backstage by the Academy president, David Rubin, and CEO Dawn Hudson. And it was his publicist, Meredith O'Sullivan, who asked Will if he wanted to leave. So he wasn't asked to leave. His publicist was asked to talk to him. She went and said, do you want to leave? And he said, no, he wants to stay and apologize for his actions. So that's a completely different situation altogether. And to muddy the waters even more, some Academy members are claiming that they allegedly expressed that they felt Smith should be removed, but nobody at all even suggested that. Nobody official from the Academy had even suggested it to his agent. So there's three different stories going on. It does feel to me that the fact that it took four days of criticism of the Academy not doing anything for them to suddenly turn around and go, "Uh, we did ask him to leave, that they're just trying to cover their backs. I think if they'd asked them to leave, they would have said that from the start, saying we asked Smith to leave on the evening. However, he refused to leave and we were going live and we had to cut back to the video feed. So we just let let it settle and hope to keep it controlled. But they've spent four days of being asked by people, why didn't you do anything before they've suddenly come up with an excuse? I'm sure they could have made him leave if they wanted to. It's difficult. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that they didn't handle this badly. What I am, I'm, I'm going to suggest is you're in the middle of a live show which is going out across yeah. the world. You're trying to produce a stage show. You are producing a TV show, and you are running to, to time the best you can in those sorts of situations. You've got all these feeds. You've got all these networks tuning in and out of it uh, along the route, and you, you're trying to make decisions off the cuff. You know in the middle of all this and bringing up your next guests, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, uh, timings and all that sort of thing. So it, it's, it's a very difficult to be in the middle of that maelstrom to, for, to sometimes to let cooler heads prevail and, and do yeah. the right thing on that. I think the post that I think you can almost be forgiven for saying, look, you know, what you did on the night was, was open to interpretation, uh, misunderstanding, uh, yeah. poor decision-making because it's, it's live, it's happening. You can't stop a show just to kick Will Smith. If he kicked off in the audience, and then that would have really damaged the yeah. the, the show in the evening and, and careers, alone Will Smith. So I, th- I think it was it's it was a damned if you do and damned if you don't on the night. I think the fact that they didn't offer a unanimous response quicker is is more disappointing and leaves yeah. them more with egg on the face and then contradictions. But um, I'm just hoping it's forgotten. There are more important issues in the world that we should be talking about this a week on. Yeah, It looks like he is going to be withdrawn or he's asked to leave or he has actually left. I don't know. There's so many contradictory stories out well, there of being a, an Academy member. Well, the Academy are currently investigating the incident, so they're going to decide on action to be taken when they have their meeting later this month. Uh, as they've formally said... The Academy condemns the actions of Mr. Smith at last night's show. We've officially started a formal review around the incident and will explore further action and consequences in accordance with our bylaws, standards of conduct and California law. Now, what that action will be is uncertain. 
Initial suggestion was that it was strip him of his Academy membership and maybe the removal of the Oscar. Smith himself has saved him the bother a part of that by actually handing his resignation into the Academy membership this week, saying himself that his actions were unacceptable, adding, I betrayed the trust of the Academy. I deprived other nominees and winners of their opportunity to celebrate and be celebrated for their extraordinary work. So I'm resigning from membership in the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences and will accept any further consequences the board deems appropriate. He also publicly apologised to Chris Rock, even though some people online are still convinced that he hasn't. But he has. He posted publicly on social media his apology. Um, I'd like to publicly apologise to you, Chris. I was out of line and I was wrong. I'm embarrassed and my actions were not indicative of the man I want to be. There is no place for violence in a world of love and kindness. Uh, Chris Rock has said that he's still unpacking the events, but isn't going to talk about it yet. He's the consummate professional. I'm loving Chris Rock more and more through how he's handled everything from start to finish on this. It was his first stand-up gig after this event, and he started the show just saying, look, we all know what happened, but I'm not talking about it in the show. He could have done what most other comedians would have done and gone in and made it a skit and mocked Will Smith back, etc., and just turned it into something else. But he's not. What a professional. Should Smith lose his Oscar? Personally, I say no. Yeah, I agree. He won for a film. He won for a role that he played in a film. This event doesn't erase that performance. That performance was still strong enough to win an award. I don't think he should lose it. He's stepping away from the Academy. I I think that they would have made the decision that he was going to get kicked out of the Academy anyway. I I agree. I I think everything that you're saying is echoing my thoughts on it. I think shouldn't have to give back the Oscar. I think that, you know, leaving the Academy is justification. I don't want it to go into, oh, no one wants to work with him anymore. I, I read somewhere that, Netflix are pulling a project. Netflix have already pulled one of their projects that they had lined up with them. So, it, yeah, it's it's unfortunate that all of this has happened. You've got the whole aspect of like, a, oh, violence doesn't solve anything. But what would you do? No one will know until you're in that situation where you know that there's millions upon millions of people watching live as someone's mocking you or your partner for something. Mm. You don't know until you're in that situation how you will react. You might say, oh, just laugh it off. But you can't say for definite until you're in that situation. Yeah, yeah. People have like smacked someone for less than that in general public. I've seen somebody slap somebody for looking at their pint in a wrong way. But... Yeah, I mean, that, I, I can understand that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no one looks at my pint. <laughs> this is going to be news that we'll get more feedback from once the Academy makes their decision later this month. But I think until then, I don't think we're going to get anything else except for speculation and mudslinging from various parties. So we're not going to touch on this until we get some official word from the Academy yeah, in yeah. future weeks. Okay, so on other news, just to, to brighten the mood, the Obi-Wan launch date has moved to May 27th. And this seems to be getting a lot of interest because we thought Obi-Wan might be one of those series where people go, really? Do we really want to see it? And you didn't sound that keen, but the more I've seen the trailer uh, and the more I'm hotly anticipating this. So it's now coming out on uh, May 27th. I'm still not sold on it. I, I wasn't, but I, I saw that trailer and really liked the look of it. Oh, do like the, the new trailers for Strange New Worlds, talking of series I'll never get to see. Yeah, you know, eventually we might get Paramount Plus in the UK, but hey. Yeah, with, with, with the Obi-Wan series, I'm still not sold. I will watch it, obviously, but at least now, you know, it's it's that comes out and then two weeks later we've got the Ms. Marvel show comes out. So at least I'll only have two weeks of Obi-Wan before I'll be like, oh, I've got something else to watch instead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Staying in in TV, It is getting a TV prequel, which is in development right now. Yes. Uh, And the series is going to be called uh, Derry. 
from what I believe at this stage. Um, interesting to see this. There's a lot of back history that wasn't uh, detailed in the movies, which is in the book. So um, it, it's a bit of a no-brainer. Kind of makes perfect sense. We didn't get the Overlook Hotel series that we were hotly anticipating. So maybe yeah. this will be our fill of TV uh, Stephen King goodness. Let's hope they expand it out in a decent way rather than it just becoming a generic concept show. Yeah. Tying into it, he played Pennywise in the It film, but Bill Skarsgård is now set to take on another character as he's the latest name who's been attached to the role of Eric Draven in the reboot of The Crow. See, we were talking about reboots. We were. <laughs> we, we, we don't just do this show. We, it's, a, it's a finely tuned engine. And Andy is the key to that engine. Um, it is. And I mean, this, The Crow has been on and off with the idea of further sequels and uh, a reboot for ages. And it seems to get right to the point of, of production and, and then gets dropped at the last minute. I'm, I'm not going to use the silly term of it. It's a cursed uh, uh, franchise. But uh, it does now look as though they are starting production in the next couple of weeks. The original comic from James O'Barr followed Eric Draven and his fiancée, who were assaulted and killed by a gang after their car breaks down. And Eric was resurrected with the spirit of a crow and exacts vengeance upon those who took, took his life and the life of his love. And there's been other comic interpretations with rebooted characters and so on and so forth. But then there was that iconic film. And I think one of the problems that this, ha this film's had is that people consider that iconic cult classic so highly because of the circumstances around the film, that it's made people think it's distasteful if they remake it. But this is one that is top of my list that I want to see a reboot of. Yeah, time's right now. I mean, the sequels were very poor. Uh, I, I never got past the second one because I think by the time yeah. the third one, they followed this idea that every movie, therefore, would have a different interpretation of, of The Crow. But yeah. uh, the, the Brandon Lee version was just, just stunning. Uh, Rupert Sanders is going to direct... Oh, this choice. version of it, with Edward R. Pressman and Malcolm Gray producing. And uh, Zach Balin, who penned King Richard, is penning this script. 50 million budget, planning for a June start in Prague and Munich. Uh, and in, like you say, in the past, there's people like Stephen Norrington was attached at one point. Jason Momoa was attached a few years ago, and that kind of fell apart. Luke Evans has been there. There's been many attempts, attempts to do this, but it looks like finally finally it's going to happen and i'm hoping this will be done well to prove those naysayers wrong who say you shouldn't touch a beloved classic i agree what else we got Catherine bigelow is a name that we love we do uh i re-watched near dark quite recently and boy it's still probably my favorite vampire movie yeah it's, it's i mean when we talked about it on the deep dive all those episodes ago Absolutely brilliant film. But it's been five years since her last film, Detroit, came out. Yeah, I miss Detroit as well. But she's now returning and has got an upcoming feature for Netflix called Aurora. Is it a science fiction movie? It, well, it, the story follows in the wake of a solar storm that knocks out most of humanity's power grids. The action focuses on the personal story of a divorced mother who must now do everything she can to protect her teenage daughter and estranged brother. A wealthy Silicon Valley CEO who's built a luxurious bunker in the desert for such a disaster. It's adapting an, an upcoming novel by screenwriter David Cope. That's where I'd heard of it. I knew I'd heard uh, some mutterings about the story previously. Yeah, it's a David Cope book. He's, he's a good writer. I mean, he's a great screenwriter, but he's, his novels are pretty good too. And it's got a decent budget behind it. Um, it's not got, we don't know the specifics, but we know that it's over $100 million budget. So I'm, a, I'm looking forward to it because I think whatever genre... Catherine Bigelow tackles 
she can always bring something different to yep. play within it. Agreed. She creates iconic films. She gets great performances out of the cast. And she always has like an underlying, like underlying themes that you can really latch onto. So this kind of like, your favorite word, post-apocalyptical yes, um, setting. <laughs> I, th- I think that gives us something to really get a teeth into. We'll keep a look out for this one. Uh, we've got some casting news, haven't we? Which which news should we go with? Oh, should we go with Blue Beetle first? <laughs> oh, well, you mean that Sharon Stone has now joined the cast of Blue Beetle and is going to be playing the villain, Victoria Cord, which is a new character created just for the movie. But it's believed to be connected to the character of Ted Cord, the second Beetle in the comics. Yeah. Sharon Stone did so well when she last played a villain in a comic <laughs> book movie, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that... I, I, you can't blame her, and neither can you blame Halle Berry for for Catwoman. There were there were some very poor choices. The Blue Beetle is planned for release August twenty twenty three, and we'll see Jamie Ray's played by Zolo Maraduena from Cobra Kai gain a powerful suit when a scarab grafts itself onto his spine. Sounds horror horrific. Actually, it should look, it should be quite fun family adventure because that's the kind of thing the Blue Beetle is. Speaking of family fun adventure... Tell me all about your family fun adventure. <laughs> Robert Rodriguez is rebooting Spy Kids for Netflix. Oh, really? Oh, well, that's something that um, I have zero interest in because I thought the Spy Kids movie was terrible. Oh, I, I've, got, I've, got I a, I've, got a, I've got a fondness for particularly the first and second one. He's got a pen and direct the new project, which will focus on a new family of spies. There's no details as to whether this is going to be a total reboot or whether we'll get to see a few familiar faces pop up to link it together. But I am kind of excited for this. I found that the Spy Kids series was sometimes enjoyable family fun with some nice homages to the spy genre and even Ray Harryhausen in the second, second film with some marvellous stop motion animation. Yes, the third film was a mess because they lent into the 3D fad. But sign me up for another chance to enjoy Rodriguez's crazy world. OK, all right. I'm, I'm not convinced. Uh, not not something that I enjoyed. Do you know that Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson, and Jason Bateman are teaming up? So reteaming of Evans and Johansson to work on a project, Project Artemis. I've not heard of that one. So not much in the way of giveaway plot, but all I can tell you is it's written by Rose Gilroy, who's the daughter of writer-director Dan Gilroy. And all we know about it is that it's going to be picked up by... Apple TV Plus. Apple TV Plus is usually a sign of quality, so that's one that um, we'll keep on our radar. There's another Artemis, so don't get confused, that's coming from Deadpool director Tim Miller, uh, and he's attached to that one, while Phil Lord and Chris Miller have been quietly developing an adaptation of a novel by Andy Weir, which I think is also called Artemis. So there's a lots of Artemis, Project Artemis, so one will get a name change, but this one that we're talking about <laughs> Stars Evans and Johansson. Uh, Paramount are working on an untitled H.G. Wells project with Wes Ball's Oddball Entertainment production company, which is said to be a very loose adaptation stemming from the mythology of one of Wells's most iconic titles. Which title? We don't know. Mm-hmm. But with titles such anywhere. as The Time Machine, War of the Worlds, Invisible Man, Island of Dr. Moreau, it certainly gives a few different ideas that they could draw from. Uh, I do love H.G. Wells' stories. I know that sometimes they tap into them and make bad decisions i'm looking at you the bbc adapted adaptation of war of the worlds yeah exactly what i was thinking <laughs> I was like, oh man that was so disappointing <laughs> it was but i'll always be open to new interpretations of anything that he did because his his stories were just packed with so much that you can draw on mm. throughout the ages i still think there's room for a great war of the worlds 
a Victorian adaptation. I still yeah. think the, there's there's plenty to be explored in that. And I'd still like to see a decent telling of, of The Island of Dr. Moreau, because it's one of my favourite H.G. Wells books. Yep. So th- there's plenty of opportunity there. Let's see which one it comes up with in the end. Um, Ethan Hawke has been doing publicity for Moon Knight at present, and he's spoken about a potential fourth before film. Okay. Um, in his words, we constantly daydream about a possible right idea, like the reason why the first three happened so organically is we all mysteriously wanted to write the same movie, but we've never had quite the same idea. Ideas have been put forward, like, wow, what if Jesse and Celine were in quarantine? We put forward ideas like, what if something bad happened to one of us? But he does go on to suggest that we shouldn't expect a fourth film anytime soon unless they get an idea that they feel will do the other three films credit. We're so proud of them, to be honest. We really worked hard on them and we feel like we don't want to pour any water in the beer. You wouldn't want to make a bad fourth one. There might be a moment to hit, you know, the last stage of life. That would be the time to find. So it sounds like that they have discussed it as a group multiple times through the years but they they don't want it to just be churned out they wanted to have a valid reason for existing maybe like he says like the the tapping into the post-pandemic and quarantine times would have been an interesting slant yeah uh, there's always going to be love from from this particular dojo to any of those, those films but as we said on our deep dive hand which we adore them well i still need to see the second and third one okay i've, I've got the second i haven't got the third one i've got the second one if you need to uh, i shall bring it down fantastic um, okay, when I first started in radio, I started because I was asked to review The Full Monty. I was just a bright young thing back in those days where the world was ahead of me. And you know what? I hated it. And I nearly got run out of town <laughs> for hating. You can't hate The Full Monty in Sheffield, but I did. Wow. I, I'll stand that's, by that. That's like living day. in Liverpool and not liking the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, I know. And uh, uh, I still have no love for The Full Monty. I think it's a, an excruciating film, um, which... <laughs> Hopefully we'll never do a deep dive on. Careful, this show's just got going to get cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> However, if you are a fan, and clearly I'm not, then the Full Monty original cast are reuniting for a Disney Plus series. So I'm guessing they're going to must be going to have to film in this fair city of ours, uh, and hopefully it'll be better than the original film. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I've Ladies no and gentlemen, this is just Lee. This is, this is just Lee's opinion. opinion. Please, please. I don't share that opinion. I do quite <laughs> quite find some enjoyment out of the full Monty. So please don't cancel the show. Stick, keep coming back. Well, I'll tell you what and people, of, she- people tell- of Sheffield, please do not invade my workspace <laughs> and start having a go at me for what Lee has said. I can't control him. I can't help him. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it did do. It, a, it, it gave me a career in radio for some time. And also it, it gave me the opportunity to write uh, my own, my first screenplay, which got sold, which was kind of the antithesis of the Full Monty, because my Sheffield and growing up in it wasn't sort of the grim up north world. It was about music yeah. and, and about laughter and nightclubs and, and people having fun. Uh, and it was the flip of that. So I wouldn't have been inspired to write that if, if I hadn't seen the Full Monty. And I know I'm in the minority. And just because I dislike it doesn't mean other people have to dislike it. You know, we're all <laughs> entitled to our own views. But um, I'll, I'll always stand by. I was one of the few yeah. people who just... Who, just did nothing for me and i've seen the stage play version as well and enough said about that <laughs> so quickly quickly moving on to any more news andy quickly moving on uh, john carney who gave us sing street and once is set to direct the untitled bg's biopic for paramount pictures have you ever seen sing street i have yes it's a great film i love it absolutely that oh let's put it on a deep dive list yeah yeah 
I'll, I'll add that to the deep dive notes later. But yeah, uh, the scribe behind Gladiator, Skyfall and Penny Dreadful, John Logan, has been hired to write the script. That's a decent writer there. Mm. And for those who don't know who the BGs are, what rock have you just crawled out from under? Born <laughs> in the UK, uh, they formed whilst in their youth in Australia and were one of the best-selling groups of all time. Popularity expanded after they wrote songs for Saturday Night Fever in 1977 and fueled the popularity of disco, leading to one of the top-selling albums ever. The sole surviving member, Barry Gibb, is said to be very involved in the narrative of the film and will serve as executive producer. The narrative will follow in the wake of Frank Marshall's acclaimed documentary about the band, which was released in late 2020. Okay. Um, always room for a biopic. I, I wonder if they'll have that infamous moment when uh, they were on Clive Anderson and they walked off. <laughs> it wasn't even that contentious <laughs> a question, in all honesty. But hey, you know... <laughs> Check it out on YouTube if you don't know what to do. You'll always about. be late tossers to us. <laughs> Here's a quick bit of news that made me smile. Michael Bay has admitted he made too many Transformers movies. I think he made probably, uh, how many did he make? Four. <laughs> I think he probably made four too many. I'm not going down well with the listeners today, am I? <laughs> no. In his words, I made too many of them. Steven Spielberg said, just stop at three. And I said, I'll stop. But then the studio begged me to do a fourth. And then that made a billion too. And then I said, I'm going to stop here. And they begged me again. I should have stopped, but they were fun to do. Yes, he should have stopped. He made five too many, in my opinion. <laughs> All of his films were terrible. I, if anything, I thought the first one was passable, but but just I, I, but without that, we wouldn't have got Bumblebee. I got I got as far as Optimus Prime saying "Oops, my bad," and I checked out of that film completely. <laughs> that that was the point. It's like that's not Optimus Prime. Go away. Don't start me. Um, Ethan Cohen is going to follow in his brother's footsteps and branching off to make his own film. As we know, Joel Cohen gave us Tragedy at Macbeth last year, and now Ethan's developing an as-of-yet-untitled offering for Focus on Working Title, said to be an incarnation of the Russ Meyer-inspired 70s exploitation-esque lesbian road trip movie that Cohen wrote a decade or so ago with his wife, Trisha Cook. An action comedy romp centering on a party girl taking a trip from Philadelphia to Miami with her friend. Bars, a severed head, bitter ex-girlfriend, mystery briefcase, and evil senator all come into play. This sounds... Weekend out of my life. Perfectly. <laughs> this sounds perfect, Cohen Brothers. But it'd be interesting to see, because it, it seems like the, the, the key writer is Ethan when it comes to the Cohen Brothers films, and the key director is Joel. Yeah. And this is going to be interesting to see if Ethan can actually direct a Cohen Brothers film as well as the pair did together. Mm-hmm. Filming on this will begin in summer. I'm interested because Tragedy of Macbeth was a great adaptation of Macbeth, yes. but that's all that it was. It was a great adaptation of Macbeth. This is something that is more in line with what we expect from the Coens. Yeah, we'll wait and see. Look, before we go this week, and I, I must admit, I felt a bit awkward about it listening back to last week's podcast. Uh, we mentioned Bruce Willis and the Razzie Award, uh, which has now been pulled in light of the news about Bruce Willis. And uh, uh, it did make for a little bit of awkward awkward listening back and we'll stand by what we we said about it was before we knew about uh, yeah. about bruce willis retiring from acting so um while i don't think an apology is in order we i understand that if anybody did think it, it felt in bad taste we record this before that that news landed but what we did say is how much that we loved bruce willis and boy did we love the work of bruce willis so it, it came as a bit of a shock. I kind of caught it at the tail end of the news, and it would have been Wednesday. And I, for an awful moment, I thought the actor had passed away because they were doing a, yeah. a, a look back on his career before they explained everything. Yes, Bruce Willis's recent 
wealth of titles that he's been churning out for the past few years appear to have had a very valid reason behind them because the actor has announced that he's retiring from film due to health reasons. He's been experiencing some health issues and was recently diagnosed with aphasia, which is impacting on his cognitive abilities. It affects a person's ability to express and understand written and spoken language. Um, His family have posted a statement that says, this is a really challenging time for our family. And we're so appreciative of your continued love, compassion and support. We are moving through this as a strong family unit and wanted to bring his fans in because we know how much he means to you as you do to him. As we said last week when we were talking about the Razzie Awards category, which was all about the Bruce Willis films that have come out and he'd done eight in the past year. When we spoke about that, we said we, we just want him to have that renaissance. We want to see him rise back to like his former glory. We will never get to see that. But we now get to see why he's been doing what he's been doing over the past few years and appreciate more the films that he's left us as he's been working through his career. Memories of Bruce Willis for me, first introduced to him through Moonlighting on TV. Tommy, my love for Moonlighting um, knows no bounds. It was a fantastic series, way ahead of its time and yet such an 80s series at the same time. The breaking of the fourth wall and... uh, uh, characters realizing that they were in a tv series at times uh, it was it was a, a career making series and he was so good on it if they ever repeat it you get a chance to watch it again and especially the first three seasons when it was on on it it was just un, un, unstoppable he yeah. was brilliant it was no wonder that he went on to the big screen because he just dominated that show. I, I'm nothing to take nothing away from uh, Cyril Shepard, who was was also fantastic in it, and they were the perfect foil. If you're going to yeah. have two lead characters who are, they have to be of equal measure. And her playing Maddie uh, to his David, were, were, they were just two of the best foil characters on television. But Bruce Willis was a star on the rise. It had kind of a, a, a knowing eightiesness about it. It was a throwback to things like black and white. Thin man mm. movies. It had a kind of uh, knowing sense of humor. It was funny. It was touching. It was brilliantly written, and it just it just led Willis into being a star. But he tried to he tried to move into movies a couple of times while doing that. He did uh, a Blind Date with Kim Basinger. He did a film with James Garner called uh, Sunset. But it was Die Hard when he landed the role of Die Hard after so many other people had turned it down that he brought. That wit, that charm, that being able to to deliver action and the cocky one-liner to a big screen audience and and sold it. And he made he made uh, John McClane an everyman in a way yeah. that Stallone wouldn't have, or a way that Arnie wouldn't have, or any of the other big action stars at the time. He made him a, a blue collar dude. You know, yeah. he, he made him believable and. The impact of Die Hard still resonates now in the film industry. Following that, I mean, the, some of the most iconic roles that he's had is work with M. Night Shyamalan on Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. Yeah, let's in not particular. forget the drama they can do as well as the action. Yep. Uh, Pulp Fiction with uh, Quentin Tarantino, absolutely mesmerizing. Yeah. As uh, Butch in that. You've got his more recent years. He's had films like Looper, yes, um, a low budget indie sci fi time travel film. You've, Which you've is got so thing. many things. Yeah. I've got a huge love for The Fifth Element as well, which I think he's magnificent throughout it. There's so many films. It's easy to forget how many good films he has been in. 
until you look through the full list and then you'll start to realise that a lot of your favourite films of all time will be within the list. Sin City. Sin City. What a film. That's just come to my mind. It's just like, yeah, every time that I think about, again, I'll find something else that this great actor has given us. So, you know, this does mean, like we said, we won't get to see his renaissance, but we will always be able to revisit all those great films that he's made. And we'd like to send all our heartfelt wishes to him and his family for all the entertainment that he's brought us ever since we first slapped eyes on him all those years ago alongside Sybil Shepherd. Highly applaud that, Andy. Highly, highly applaud it. All the love. And that is this week's The News. Still with us, still on course for the film file as we enter into our dramatic second half. Much, much more to come. But thank you for sticking around. And if this is your first time, well, hello. Did you know that you can go back and get other episodes of The Film File? Did you know that you can subscribe? Did you know that you can leave a like? Well, if you didn't, all you have to do, head over to your favourite podcast platform, find The Film File, hit that subscribe button, hit a like. And remember, tell your friends, sell it on, become part of the ever-growing legion of The Film File. Soon we'll be taking over the world, or our own very little corner of the world. Want to know more about the Film File? You can do that as well. You can head over to Twitter and follow us at Film File UK. You can find us on various other social media channels. Just search for Film File UK. You'll, you'll stumble on us, trust me. Or you can email us. Yes, you can email us with thoughts, suggestions, films that you want us to talk about, films that you don't want us to talk about. So that could be very important. Would you like us to do a deep dive into the full Monty just to wind up late? <laughs> you just let us know because uh, I'm, I'm happy to do it. He made me sit through. He made me sit through Bookaroo Banzai. <laughs> no matter where you are, you're always there, Andy. I, th- I, think, uh, I think a deep dive into that's going to come around. But yeah, let us know. What should, what should we do? What should we do to wind Lee up for not liking him? <laughs> Full Monty. I might not be Fire alone the in this, over. Andy. There might be others out there. It might not just be me. Yeah, if you're the other person out there who doesn't like Full Monty, <laughs> then get in touch. You can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. We'd love, love, love to hear from you. And I do promise that I will reply to everyone who emails in, unless you're spamming my inbox. Let's move on to this week's deep dive. In a world of deep dives, this is one that Andy's been highly looking forward to um, because it's one of his all-time favourite films. came out in 2012. It performed less reasonably well at the box office it should do. And that's not because it's a bad movie. Quite the opposite. This is a great movie. Directed by Pete Travis. Written by Alex Garland. This is a film comes from the comic book pages of 2000 AD. This is dread because he is the law 800 million people living in the ruin of the old world only one thing fighting for order in the chaos judges there's drugs like nothing i've ever seen if we play this right we can take the whole city mama's controlling all the slow-mo production and distribution rookie you ready yeah. You look ready. Fire! Mama's not the law. I'm the law. I'm going in before the kill. How do you plead? Defense noted. Dread 3D. Herbs were uncooperative. 
Judge Dredd, based on the eponymous character created by John Wagner and Carlos Escara for 2000 AD, a weekly British comic, which was a bit of a rollaway blockbuster as far as weekly comics go by giving us a really our first British superhero. There'd been a previous adaptation of Judge Dredd, which starred Sylvester Stallone, which we will mention a little bit later. But it's this version, directed by Pete Travis and written by Alex Garland, that really is the truest telling of the character. Starring Carl Urban as Judge Dredd, a law enforcer given the power of judge, jury and executioner in the vast dystopic metropolis called Mega City One that lies in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Dredd and his apprentice partner, Judge Anderson, played by Olivia Thurby, are forced to bring order to a 200-story high-rise block of apartments and deal with its resident drug lord, played by Lena Headey, Mama. So this, as I said, is the closest telling to Dredd. Uh, it came up in our films that, that deserved a sequel. There's often been talk of a TV series. In fact, one was supposed to go into production just a couple of years ago because Carl Urban is desperate to reprise the character. Despite it not doing well at the box office, this stands firmly as a great comic book adaptation. And as I said, captures Dread absolutely perfectly. Andy, you have all the love for this film. Tell us why you have all the love for this film. Being a fan of the character since the very early days of 2000 AD, I adore the Judge Dredd stories. I love the mythology and world building that is possible within there. And yes, we had a film in 1995 with Sylvester Stallone that gave us a great looking design of the mega city close to the comics, but the film didn't feel like a Dread film. And then when we got this one, yes, the design work looks different. Visually, Mega City isn't similar to the comics at all. The versions depicted in the film feel more grounded in a reality. But it works so well because in the lead role of Judge Dredd, you have Carl Urban, who himself, you can tell, is such a huge fan of the material because he insisted the one key thing that makes this a Judge Dredd movie. He never takes his helmet off. In the comics, we've never seen Dredd's face, except for when there was the side story after he walked the cursed earth for ages and he was all charred and burned. So you got to see a face, but it wasn't what he looked like. And Urban's commitment to refusing to take the helmet off. And apparently on set, he stayed in character all times. Even when someone was making jokes, he just gave them steely-eyed Dredd stirs to like make them feel that they'd done something wrong. And you can tell because it, the, the film just works completely because everyone involved in it seems to love what it's all about. The, the fact that you've got Carl Urban and Olivia Thirlby saying that they would love to reprise both of their roles shows how much they gave into this, you know, relatively low budget, but well put together and well crafted film. It gets the essence of dread. It gets the, the scale of the city blocks and how every city block is completely self-contained. When the shutters go up for, you know, defense mode lockdown, and you realize that, well, yeah, you could you could literally separate off these blocks from the whole world, and everything that they need is in there. Shops, communities, playgrounds, all are with, contained within one block. It's a dark dystopian future, but a believable and understandable one. There's nods to the comics without going a bit over the top. Things like, you know... A guy sat watching TV and you can see his wheel that he uses to support his belly stashed to the side. 
to represent the more silly aspects of the comics, but in a more realistic setting. It's violent. It's funny at times. It looks amazing. It's well acted. Everything about this film is a great film, but also a great dread film. Its biggest problem that it had on release, well, there's two main problems that it had on release. The first one is that there was another film which followed pretty much the same plot that came out about the same time and got a lot more momentum, and that's The Raid, which has a lone cop or two going in a criminal underworld building and working the way up. Dread was actually made first. Dread was in the can before The Raid even started production. However, Dread spent too long in post-production and the, the buzz had kind of been worn away by the time it got released. And then the second problem it had is the distributor decided to jump on board the 3D fad and it got released in a predominantly 3D format. I remember the cinema that I was working at at the time had five shows of this per day, four of which were 3D, one of which at 10 to 5 each evening was 2D. The 2D one sold out every show over the first week. The 3D one, it was lucky if it broke double figures. And that killed the film because it got released at a time when there'd been a dirge of Clash of the Titans-esque bad 3D films and people didn't want to risk a property such as Dread, which isn't hugely known as much as it's beloved by comic book audiences in the UK. 2000 AD isn't that predominant with your mass public. No, it's never gained the recognition of, of a Batman or a Spider-Man or a Superman. It always verges on the cult, Dread, and, and, and a very cool cult that that goes along with it. I've never been a huge fan of 2000 AD. I've got uh, a couple of friends who, who work for it, uh, an old friend of mine currently drawing Dread. It's just never a character that's appealed to me. I have preferred this cinematic outing than that of the comic. Now, you talked about Mega City 1 not looking as science fiction-y as it does in the comics, which is purely down to budget. They went for a very lean believable Mega City Dread without all the robots, without sort of the um, uh, flying cars, et cetera, et cetera, uh, overheads of, of uh, huge uh, motorways or highways. Uh, and went for a, a much more, a much more realistic, organic looking world. They shot it in South Africa uh, as opposed to shooting it anywhere else. But the character of Dread portrayed by Carl Urban is absolutely spot on. The hardest thing about Dread and which makes him an incredibly difficult character to um, to portray on screen is the excessive need to administer justice, and and whether that's through an extreme lack of prejudice or an extreme extremely motivated by violence, makes him a very one note character, and it's usually the other characters around him who um, other people who get some kind of development arc. I still think there's a there's a, a development arc in this. I think that's why it's quite a clever script mm -hmm. by Garland. He manages to do something with Dread without ever losing sight of who he is, as opposed to the Stallone version, which starts off in the first 15 minutes and, and the portrayal of Mega City 1 is, is spot on, but then forgets who the character is about a, a third of the way in and then completely goes off the rail for the rest of the movie. So if you'd imagine this version with that, that budget from the first movie, it would have been <laughs> absolutely spot on. But as you said, this is a great movie. Um, it's taut, it's tight, the action scenes are great. If my only one critique of it is it lacks some of the social parody that most of the Dread comics has, that would be it. That would be my only criticism. And that is incredibly, incredibly, 
incredibly small. Uh, I think it's a great lean action movie. And if you don't know the character, it doesn't matter because mm. you can watch this uh, and be drawn into, into the world of Dread very, very easily. It's punchy. It's to the point. And it is, it's a great comic book movie in the vast landscape of comic book movies. This is, is, is spot on. Lena Headey as Mama provides a marvellous, marvellously nasty villainous piece of work she's absolutely fantastically horrible yes. throughout and in a brutally realistic kind of way it, the, the action sequences let me just make it clear that even though the 3d i say is one of the reasons why this film didn't sell it's also one of those 3d films that actually use, uses the 3d beautifully and looks yeah, great. Yeah. See, I didn't know it was, it, was, uh, uh, it was a post-3D job because the 3D yeah. works in it really well. Especially when it's uh, representing the drug-induced slow-mo sequences. Yeah. And it just turns what is brutal carnage into a work of bizarre, surreal beauty at the same time. You know, when you've seen someone smashing into the floor from the floor's point of view, you know that you've seen something that you've never seen before. I can re-watch this film over and over again and every time that I watch it I just fall into it completely again and I just get so disappointed at the end that we never got a sequel and that this Mega City Police series that's been in various stages of pre-production for the past four years still hasn't come to light. Now throwing back to the 1995 film which had uh, Stallone in it, the 1995 film was a curious anomaly. I remember when it came, I saw it twice when it came out, I saw a pre pre-release version of it which had some extra scenes in which okay. confused the heck out of me when it came came on to general release and i sat and watched it with mates and there was a few bits missing that kind of ruined the film now there's elements of the 1995 film that i absolutely adore as a fan of the comic the look of mega city one was so lifted from the comic book page the design of the tech, the like lawmasters, the lawbringers, the lawgivers, all the vehicles, the weapons was spot on. Everything was perfectly designed. Maybe not uh, the Judge Dredd uniform, which didn't need a giant golden codpiece. Don't even start me down that road. <laughs> but the biggest problem that the 1995 film made was that they cast Stallone. Yeah. Yes, when he's got the helmet on, he looks great. But because they cast Stallone, they needed their star's face front and centre. And so the helmet got removed within the first few minutes of him appearing in the film. And at that point, it no longer became a dread film and it became Demolition Man 2, yeah. for want of a better word. Don't get me wrong, Demolition Man's a great film, but I didn't want Judge, Judge Dredd as Demolition Man. There's some great designs of the Cursed Earth exploits within the 1995 film. There's, some there's a great use of a, a mechanised attack robot which was inspired by one of the ABC warriors from the comic books. And there's so much in there. There's Armand DeSante walking onto set and eating all the furniture around him as he chews every bit of scenery <laughs> in scene-stealing moments that I can't help but love. But it did too much. The biggest problem with the Judge Dredd 1995 film is it packed in too many different story ideas into one film. It tried to have like some comedy with Rob Schneider. If you've got to get comedy, don't hire Rob Schneider. <laughs> and it it tried to be flippant. It tried to be fun, but it tried to do too much world expanding in one film. The 2012 Dread film kept it tight. It kept it simple. 
it let new audiences come on board not knowing the character and just get to know that character without showing us too much of the world a sequel could expand it out there's so much left to explore but that's what the 2012 got right it made a film that was focused on a character. Just to uh, address the Stallone version, uh, Danny Cannon directed it, who was a British director who went on to do CSI and made all of his money from from uh, CSI pilots, where he's, he's still yeah. an exec producer. He had an absolute love for Judge Dredd in 2018. In fact, wrote a letter and did a poster for one of the comics in the letters pages of a Ridley Scott-inspired version of, uh, uh, of Judge Dredd when he was just a fan. It was that problem that you're always going to get with a, um, a young director working for a studio, and especially for a studio didn't really understand the property. So, and we saw that with with countless superhero films of how they were chewed up and spat out before yeah. um, this this golden age that we're living in right now. Uh, and unfortunately, new directors or young directors are easily controlled by the studio. And when you've got a star like Stallone. All you're there is to, to do is to turn up and, and say action and cut and just hope for the best. So, um, yeah, it was uh, um, uh, disappointing. The look of the film is, is absolutely fantastic. The hardware's great. The style of the movie, the first 15 minutes are, are pretty much spot on. But as you said, it does become a, a Stallone vehicle after that and quite forgettable after that mm. silly film with a silly script. Let's just prefer... The movie that we finally got, we got in dread and hope is that one day and never say never in this industry that we will get, I don't think a theatrical outing, but Netflix or Amazon Prime, uh, Apple, I think that's where dread would, would work best and find and find the audience. Yeah. And that's our deep dive for this week. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. Andy, where can we find dread and where can we find Judge Dredd, if, if need be. Okay, neither of them at this point in time are available for free on any services. I think Judge Dredd itself only dropped off Sky within the last month. But you can rent them on pretty much all services or purchase them for anything from £2.49 upwards, depending on what quality you want. So just go around and rent them or buy yourself the Blu-ray of uh, Dredd. Don't bother buying Judge Dredd. Just uh, wait until you can find that for free. I'd, I'd suggest buying it. I mean, if, if you're one of those people who still has a 3D TV, uh, you probably can still pick up the 3D version of Dread and appreciate one of the only 3D films worth watching in 3D. I totally agreed. Anyway, it's now time for the reviews. Andy said the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, are we going to go in that order? Are we going to go for the ugly? It's up to Andy. Because he has done the Lord's work this week. Done what many have feared was going to be a train wreck of a movie. I think Andy has, uh, has been a passenger on that train wreck just to bring you this week's review. We'll get going on Mobius. Taking a Z-list villain and sometimes anti-hero from the comics and making a movie about them is sometimes met with derision and sneers. With little recognition of the character outside comic fandom, why would studios think there's a market? However, films such as Guardians of the Galaxy and Suicide Squad showed that lesser known doesn't necessarily mean bad. Then, along comes a film like Morbius to make you think again. I'd do anything to save a life. I don't want to see you get hurt more than you already have. This would be a cure. At what cost? You did it. You found a cure. Not exactly. I can't control it. Michael, stop! All our lives we've lived with death. Why shouldn't they know what it feels like for a change? Just accept who you are. The bad guy. Morbius.
Morbius. A new Marvel legend arrives only in cinemas. Following the formula laid down by the Venom films, take a character, give them powers, give someone else the same powers, make them fight in a CG battle. This is another Sony entry into their Spider-Man universe, albeit with barely any linking tissue to Spider-Man, despite what those bait-and-switch trailers would have led you to believe. In it, we meet Dr. Michael Morbius, a brilliant mind in a withering body, seeking a way to cure his ailments and prolong his life. He finds it via combining the DNA of a rare breed of vampire bat with his own, and finds that as a side effect, he is granted fantastical powers, but a hunger for blood that consumes him. As he seeks a cure, an old friend suffering the same condition poses a threat to him, his closest companions, and indeed, the world. Cue excitement, action, or maybe not. I've left films through the years in varied states of emotion. Excitement, joy, heartbreak, disappointment, anxious, thrilled, upset, depressed, but rarely have I left a film as the credits rolled in a state of anger. I think the last time that that happened was when I made the mistake of watching Paul Blart Mall Cop. Well, Morbius left me absolutely livid. Barely coherent in structure, it's evident how much of this film has been savaged by the scattershot nature of the storytelling. From the offset, the intelligence of the audience was insulted, with Morbius, played by Leto, getting off a helicopter and struggling to walk with his canes, only for someone who's been with him on the whole journey to only then notice that he has a medical condition and comment on it, clearly throwing a line in so that audiences can then benefit from being told what the medical condition is, because we needed that prompt, even if it's so bizarre that you'd make the comment there and then. We're then given some hand-fisted dialogue about bats that they intend to catch and how they can strip large beasts to bone in seconds, only to then have a veritable cloud of said bats fly around everyone without actually, you know, harming anyone. Within those minutes, I realised this film was going to spend just over an hour and a half insulting my intelligence. The level of unnatural dialogue exchanges to shoehorn exposition in, possibly to cover up the cracks left after the editing process, clearly removed chunks of the actual film continued from that point onwards, delivered by a cast who are either phoning it in or hammily overplaying it all. Hello, Matt Smith. The child actors in the early moments are dreadful, maybe deliberately so, in order to make the adult cast look better as a result. Every word spoken throughout made me grate my teeth more and more through the sheer banality of it all. But hey, this is a comic book movie, so you're here for the action, yeah? If so, prepare to be disappointed as the stylized action is all high-speed blurry images of colour with no substance to them, which seem to crash and smash through things, but I can't quite recall how. Every now and then, the film tries to be cool and slows down for an almost comic book panel freeze-frame moment, which instead of looking impressive, actually allows you a moment to see how shockingly bad the CGI elements are. This is CGI effects work, the like of which we witnessed in films like I Am Legend, embedded into a superhero film that could have come straight out of the late 90s. I did go into this wanting to find some positive to draw from the film. I always try to find some positive in even the worst of films, but I genuinely couldn't find any enjoyment through this whole diabolical mess. Even the musical score, overblowing and imposing as it is, hammered me down more and more as the film played out. By the time the final battle, and by battle I mean streaks of wavy lines with some blurry mass in the middle, came around and it brought the whole thing to a lacklustre confusion. I was angry. I was angry at the filmmakers for daring to try to associate this with Marvel. I was angry at the cast for not even trying. I was angry at the studio for their clear interference in the film and reshoots to force elements in. I was angry at the bait and switch of those trailers that represented a completely different film. But mostly, I'm angry at myself for watching this when there's so many other films that I haven't seen. Without Marvel themselves involved, 
Sony clearly are clamouring to churn out things half-baked. And with the Craven film going into production, a character that deserves much better treatment than what Venom and now Morbius have been given. Well, that just makes me angrier. This is the kind of comic book movie that sets comic book movies back decades. I suppose the law of averages says that we have to have bad ones every now and then, but does it have to be from the same studio each time? So I'm guessing that you're angry with this <laughs> film, Andy. I don't know what it is. I was going to join you. Uh, um, a work obligation took me out, and I think I, I dodged got the away bullet with it. <laughs> on that one. Like I sent you the message afterwards, it's like, you got away with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm interested. I'm interested in where a film fails sometimes as, as much as I'm interested to see where a film has succeeded. It had a pretty good director and he directed Life, which I think is a is a great little yeah. scary horror movie. So we know that the director can deliver. So it can only be studio interference trying to chop and change this and to make it into something that it didn't want to be. I think there might be an, an element of Leto interference as well in this. Which... It does feel that he's brought something to the set that doesn't quite work mm. yeah i mean i've got i don't have much faith in him as a as a as an actor you know and he's turned out more poor performances you know he's he's not even the in the worst of the joker file he is just the worst joker ever yeah you know he's not he, cesar romero's joker is a better joker than jared leto's but i don't know if again if that's him or or, or david ayer perhaps he just needs a, yeah. a stronger director so the i've got a feeling and i know you've sort of mentioned this that um you know all the spider-man elements of the, that we saw in the trailer aren't there my theory is is that the studio got scared realized they got a bomb on the hand tried to cut it into something tried to cut out as many as many references as they could maybe it does that make sense but then you're talking about this awful uh, uh ending it just sounds like a, a, a huge mess, and uh, yeah. as I said earlier, these these are the reasons that that um, that films fail, that 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 people get bored of certain genres because they see the trash, and uh, you, there's too much trash. The quality gets affected by it. Anyway, um, we've we've gone with I guess that's the ugly as well as the bad, is it? Or, or we, can we now just go <laughs> to good and the bad? What's next? No, that that's definitely the bad. The ugly is the bubble which landed on Netflix. Oh, you see, I thought that was going to be your good. Welcome to the start of production of Cliff Beast 6. Thank you for joining us in our bubble. Please make sure you're wearing proper PPE. Physical touch is, of course, off the table. <laughs> so I would recommend making sweet eyes at each other. I'll show you what that looks like. <laughs> this is so exciting. It's like my movie posters have come to life. You will soon learn to hate these people. I admit to having a fondness for Judd Apatow films, even though they all tend to be overlong and desperately in need of trimming 20 to 30 minutes to make them tighter. But still, I gravitate towards them whilst acknowledging the flaws, and the bubble is no exception. During lockdown, a bunch of actors are placed into a bubble at a mansion in the UK as they work to bash out a sequel to a ridiculously over-the-top and bizarrely popular franchise named Cliff Beasts. However, the pressure of the isolation, the studio demands for the film, the production being made in such circumstances and the cast's own egos start to get to everyone involved, leading to a few, shall we say, incidents. Karen Gillan, Pedro Pascal, David Duchovny, Keegan-Michael Key, Fred Armisen, Peter Serafinowicz, Maria Bakalova, 
Rob Delaney, Kate McKinnon. The cast is packed and stacked, as you kind of get to expect from Apatow films now. And it also sees a few small cameos, as well as Apatow's own daughter, Iris, as Crystal Chris, a TikTok superstar added cynically to the production. Taking a satirical approach to elements of lockdown conditions on sets, as well as studio interference, influencer culture, stars past their prime who still act like divas, and CGI-fueled franchise films, this film packs a lot into the runtime, yet still feels strangely overlong as a result. But still, I had fun with it. It wasn't a riotous comedy from start to finish. In fact, I only actually laughed a few times. But I found myself smiling pretty much throughout, enjoying the subtle humour more than the moments that it went a bit over the top. The inclusion of finished elements from Cliff B6 before cutting back to the production worked a treat for me, to have fun at how the actors play these days to green screens and marker points. Maybe I was still feeling the impact of having seen Morbius the night before. Maybe my bar has been reset so low that as a result I found enjoyment in something bad, but not as bad as Morbius. Or maybe I just found this, like other Apato films, good but not great, and had a good time with it. The cast are fun in their roles. Duchovny was a joy as Dustin, a veteran actor who believes he can take control of production and rewrite scenes. And Pascal is a scene sealer throughout as Dieter Bravo, a serious actor who was added to the cast for this sixth film to bring some star power. Fun, but forgettable. The bubble was exactly the kind of film I needed right now. So clearly that now just leaves us with the good. And the good. Well, this was always going to be one that I was going to get excited about. Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> and you know what? I prejudged you and got and got it the wrong way around. I thought this would be <laughs> your bad and the bubble would be your good. Okay. It's time to say goodbye to humanity. Has anyone ever told you you've got serious anger issues? I can't do this alone. You don't have to. Hope I'm not too late. Oh, Lord, there are two of them now. I'm coming for you, Hedgehog. Tails? Let's do this. Oh, great. The Winter Soldier. Soft the Hedgehog 2. Hey, you got a little something on your... Someone call an Uber? Okay, we got to talk about your new look. It's like the Monopoly Man. So the first Sonic film was very light on actual video game aspects. It focused more on the human drama side of things as the Blue Hedgehog found himself marooned on Earth and befriended James Marsden's Sheriff of Green Hills, Tom. Jim Carrey's Robotnik, or Eggman, was very different from the games, but he had that usual Jim Carrey vibe to them that family audiences have come to enjoy. The end result was fun, and most importantly, it was accessible to audiences not familiar with the games. For this sequel, now that the foundation's out of the way, get ready to go full video game nonsense for Sonic 2. The sequel still retains some hu human elements, as Tom and Maddie, Tika Sumter, head off to Hawaii for Rachel's wedding, but that trip allows us to spend time with Sonic on his own, at least until he's tracked down by a now more crazed Dr. Robotnik, who's escaped from the Mushroom Planet with the help of a red echidna named Knuckles. With a two-tailed fox named Tails on his side, the pair must find the Master Emerald before Robotnik and his cohorts get to it. Cue action, adventure, temples, jungles, snowy locations, and crazy robots aplenty throughout. And boy, was I down for this. This is a video game movie, and it's unashamed to be so. Jim Carrey once more chews up the scenery around him as the zany Robotnik. And whereas in the last film he felt a little out of place with these antics, in this one he feels very much in tone with the crazy fun going on. Sonic now has other game characters to interact with, and this allows the film to generate a fun energy that carries it to an over-the-top game-like end-boss battle. After already delivering spins, slides, falls, temple runs, and enough nods to the game series that it can. It's an absolute blast for all the family, 
It isn't necessarily more of the same, but it is more of the game. Right. So that's the movies taken care of. Andy and I are going to do what we've done with all the MCU Disney outings. We're going to be talking about the first episode of Moon Knight, something we've both seen. I can't tell the difference between my waking life and dreams. It must be very difficult. The voices in your head. There's chaos in you. Embrace it. So this, right from the get-go, had a very different feel to the rest of the Marvel. Not Well, not just the, the Marvel TV series, but the Marvel movies in particular. This stood very much out on its own. And, and predominantly what was noticeable in the first episode is it doesn't seem so far to tie in to the MCU. Mm. Museum gift shop employee uh, Stephen Grant played wonderfully by Oscar Isaac. Those who tell you that it's not a very convincing English accent, you're wrong. It's, it is an English accent. It sounds like it's south of, the, south of the river to me. He's got a sleeping disorder and he wakes up yeah. in strange places and experiences what he thinks are peculiar dreams and, uh, and loss of time. He regularly hallucinates a sinister, bandaged, Egyptian-looking apparition. Turns out Stephen might actually be Mark Spector and that maybe these dreams are real. And the spectral mummy is an earth incarnation of an Egyptian moon god. And he might, in fact, be a representation of that moon god. And that's all we got from episode one. <laughs> but we, we did get was some fine acting chops from Oscar Isaacs. I had a lot of fun with this, Andy. I think it felt really, yeah. really different for a Marvel show. And I kept, it kind of reminded me more of Umbrella Academy. Um, and I know that's Jeremy Slater's uh, uh, down as... Uh, um, head writer on the series, but it, it did feel that sort of weirdness that Umbrella Academy has. Um, it didn't yeah. feel very marvel even when it got to uh, the more supernatural, sinister elements towards the end and, and the first appearance of, of Moon Knight in the finale. But it, it, it went down a very, very different path. From the offset, it had an energy to it. It had a fun energy. And like you say, towards the back end with the supernatural elements, it became Marvel's proper foray into a horror vibe. Mm. And it, it, it played on the tropes of horror. I was hooked from start to finish. Like you say, Oscar Isaac is magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. Playing, effectively, two characters, which we get to see his transformation between them towards the end of this episode. And I straight away compared it to, I, I, I call it, it's a Christopher Reeve kind of acting. We've said when we did our deep dive into uh, the Superman films with Reeve that he was he had this uncanny ability to make you genuinely believe that he was two different people. He wasn't just putting on the glasses. Mm, yeah, he was absolutely. changing his old demeanor. He was changing his the way that he speaks. Every part of his personality changes and he becomes someone completely different. And that's what Oscar Isaacs does in this. He manages to switch and everything about him seems to change in front of you. Brilliant piece of acting. Absolutely brilliant. I can't wait for the second episode so we can see more of Mark Spector because we got to see very little of Mark in this episode. And I want to see Mark. And I want to see more. Because as a fan of the comics, I know that he's not. there's not just two personalities. He has got a lot more. I want to know if the series is going to tap into a few more of them. I already suspect that there's at least two more. From I've rewatched this a second time and there's little clues 
that there's more than just Mark and Stephen. Yeah, well, we, I mean, the, the characters, I mean, slightly changed. I mean, Stephen Grant, oh, let me start that again, because to know Moon Knight was always, has always been a bit of a difficult character for Marvel because it started out in, in Werewolf by Night, created by Doug Manch and Don Perlin. And at first he was kind of a, a werewolf killing kind of Batman. Uh, as the character progressed, we discovered the three identities that we knew, whether the Moon Knight, which was Stephen Grant, who was a, a, a millionaire, so very Batman-esque. Yeah. There was uh, Mark Spector, the mercenary. And there was Jake Lockley, who was uh, another identity, he was a cab driver. Uh, and this was kind of the triptych of, of, of the Moon Knight character. And then as other writers came and explored that, they dealt with this unhinged self-personality. Brian Michael Bendis did a run where uh, he was hearing voices. This seems to be based particularly on the Jeff Lemire take, which sees uh, um, what was inside of Moon Knight's head. Did he believe it was all a, a movie? You know, it, it, it's, it's taken elements from that. But what it has done, and which was always the problem for Moon Knight, is they've taken it away from being this, this kind of Batman-esque character. And, and definitely dealt with the more supernatural element. I, I've got to say that uh, Ethan Hawkes is always a screen presence, but uh, as the yes. sort of mass murdering cult leader, Arthur Harrow, he's both charismatic and incredibly dangerous and, a, and, a, and seems to be at this stage an agent for a rival deity known as Amit. So there's there's a lot to explore in subsequent subsequent episodes. I'm liking the fact that it sort of stands alone, liking the fact yeah. that I thought it was going to be one thing and it's turning into another thing, which all the TV series have pretty much done. Um, but so far, I'm in. I think what we ought to do, Andy, is come back in a couple of weeks uh, rather than do it weekly yeah. and talk about it again and see how it's developing. I'm well and truly looking forward to seeing how this all plays out and we will update once we've got a few episodes in to see whether we're still feeling the same way. But so far, the mixture of comedy, action, and how great is it that you can have action scenes where you don't actually see the action, you just see the start of it, and then a flicker, yes. and then dead bodies on the floor. Yeah. And still feel that you've just watched a great action sequence. Yeah, very smart. Uh, the interactions between the voice in his head and Stephen are fantastic. Absolutely great, great comical, but also chilling and thrilling starting point and yeah I, I sat and watched it with uh, wife and daughter and the fact that they didn't ask me any questions at the end of it means that they were told all the informa information that they needed as people who've never read the comics to understand it and that's where marvel have got it right in this particular instance watched it with the boy the boy watched the show he won't be returning to episode two because he saw most of it hidden behind a cushion he found it really scary and, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and was out basically from the very very first scene so um i like the fact that they've gone down this this um this horror comedy route and i'm using comedy very lightly with a twist of kind of classic almost born type adventure but it is it's fresh funny and so far very different a big departure from what, what we are used to with the the mcu yeah um andy what else is out is going to grab our attention over the next week uh, there's not a huge amount this next week at cinemas there's uh, something called Fantastic Beasts, Secrets of Dumbledore, a small low-budget indie <laughs> production, I think. Um, <laughs> might bring one or two pieces of business in. Uh, yeah, the, the latest spin-off of the Harry Potter franchise lands at cinemas this week. The film that does capture my attention at the cinemas this coming week is The Outfit. Now TV and Sky, Boss Baby 2, not bothered with that one. However, Antlers lands on now tv and sky this coming week oh doesn't i've been looking forward to that for some time yeah i, I missed it when it was at this very short cinema run 
So I've been waiting for this to pop up. Um, so we'll probably talk about that next week. Um, on Netflix, Metal Lords, which is, uh, it made me groan when I read this. Two kids start a metal band, but struggle to find anyone to play bass, except one girl who plays cello. Can they win the Battle of the Bands in this light, generic package? Oh. Yes. Yes, yes, they can. <laughs> yeah, they will. Yes, they That's will. will yeah. Yes, yes, I'll tell you now. And everyone in, the, every, everyone in the town will suddenly become huge metal fans as a result, because that's how these films are. Yeah, there'll be that that one character who hated it and then be headbanging the last scene. I've, I've spared you. There's also The In-Between, which sees a broken-hearted teen who lost her love in a tragedy start to believe that he's sending her signals from beyond the grave. Ooh. Over on Amazon, All the Old Knives. Chris Pine, remember him? Stars yeah, as Henry in an old-style espionage thriller as he investigates Tandy Newton's Celia, a past flame who he suspects was a double agent. And that is pretty much all that's available. So what we will suggest is one that's actually out at the moment. It came out last week, and we'll talk about it next week when Lee's had a chance to see it. And that's Apollo 10 and a half, an animated movie from Richard Linklater that got dumped unceremoniously onto Netflix, and is scoring fantastic critical reviews, thus showing and highlighting what I've said before in that Netflix doesn't do these kind of films any justice. Yeah, it agreed. just buries them in the algorithms. Get Apollo 10 and a half watched, and you can hear our thoughts on it next week. Okay. And that, sadly or happily, depending on your point of view, depending <laughs> you're still smarting over my comments about the full Monty, is the end of the show. And as ever, thank you for joining us. We'll be back again next week with another film file. But before we go, and we do this, as you know, every week, we give you our neat thing. Something we've enjoyed, watched, tasted, played, you name it, as long as we've had a good time with it. We think it's neat. We're going to tell you all about it. Andy. So my neat thing is something that I've been using for a good year or so. And I is use it, a razor? it while we're on... <laughs> it's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> The amount of facial fuzz that I've got at the moment is crazy. <laughs> it, I've been using this as well whilst we're actually recording the show when I'm looking things up. And that's an app called Just Watch. Now, whenever Lee throws out randomly, and I should expect him to do this, where can we find this, Andy? Where can we find this? Where can we find this? I've never got it prepared, but thankfully, Just Watch is so close to hand. It's an app that you can get on mobile devices. And there's also a website that you can go to. You type in the name of a film, click on it, and it will tell you what services that is available on. It will tell you which ones it's on for free, which ones it's for rental price. You can click through on the apps. like It'll have like Amazon Prime. If you click on the Amazon Prime, it will take you to your Amazon Prime account if you've got it linked. And then you can add things into your watch list. So it's an ideal way to look for films and try to track them down. And I've, I've been using it when we've said we're doing this as a deep dive. It's like, where can I get this? And that's how I can always find something and always be able to get onto it. Now, if you get the app version, you can personalize it. So you can put in all the services that you subscribe to so that it will automatically tell you them immediately when you go onto the film. But it also has a section on there with new films. And that will have all the streaming services that you have accounts with and it'll do it day by day it'll put everything that has dropped and this is how i found apollo 10 and a half because right. like i say netflix dumps it and they do this with so many films they dumped it unceremoniously onto the service and just expect you to stumble on it only by using just watch and checking it on the fridays because usually every all the big main content drops happen on the friday i checked it on friday scrolled down got to the netflix and went 
well, what's this Apollo 10 and a half? Clicked on it. Richard Linklater, right, straight onto my watch list and got it watched. It's an ideal and it's an essential app. The more and more that we're getting into this streaming culture where lots and lots of films will get just dropped onto services without you knowing about it, this is why apps like Just Watch are so important because this is the only way that we're going to know everything that's being released. So get Just Watch installed on whatever mobile device you've got. Set up your services on there and check it. Check it once a week and scroll back through the days and just see what's come on the services. You'll find loads of gems that you were looking forward to and had for, forgotten that they were getting released. Okay, I'll, I'm in. I'll check that out. Uh, my neat thing, and we talked about how Apple TV Plus has, well, not so much the quantity, but always has the quality. The majority of their shows look great, have a fantastic cast, do something a little bit different. Even though there's been a few which have been a bit hit and miss, it's never due to a lack of ambition. Mm. They are turning out some really interesting work. And, you know, if you, you've still not signed up for it, maybe this will talk you into it. This is Severance brought to you by Ben Stiller. Yes, that Ben Stiller. Now, you remember that Ben Stiller is not always doing his uh, comedic work. He has a, an edge to a lot of his stuff. He makes a great director. I recently rewatched his Walter Mitty film and, and forgot about the scope and size and style of the film and how, how beautifully directed it was. Severance, it's an interesting premise that reminds me a little bit of, of all things, The Prisoner. So it stars Adam Scott. You'll probably remember Adam Scott from a whole slew of comedy stuff. Very likable. Uh, good Place in particular always, uh, always springs to mind. He's got that smarminess. Uh, I've never seen him tested much as an actor except in this series. He plays Mark, leads a team of office workers for this huge industry, which what they do isn't quite clear. So all the office workers have their memories surgically divided between their work and their personal life. So you go home, you have no memory of what you did at work. You go to work, you have no memory of the person you are outside of work. When a mysterious colleague reappears outside of work to Mark, it begins this journey to discover the truth about their job and the business that they're working in. I'm sounding deliberately uh, uh, mysterious about this, but I'm telling you why, because it's deliberately mysterious. Has an amazing look. As I said, it's got this kind of 70s, 60s uh, um, parallax view kind of look, uh, the prisoner look, um, incredibly, incredibly stylized, amazing production values. Um, it's a slow burner of a series. I'm four episodes in. And what's starting out with some dark humour has become more sort of fascinating, but definitely more creepy, more mysterious, and, and just very, very odd. Great cast that includes Christopher Walken, John Turturro, uh, Patricia Arquette. What's going on so far, four episodes, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is that it, it's, it's, it conjures and it with some disturbing ideas about what it means to be part of the rat race. So you want to see something that's unusual. You want to see something with high production values. Highly recommend on Apple TV Plus Severance. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. And that, guys, is us done for this week. We'll be back again next week. You can catch us on No Barriers Radio or you can catch us on the Film File podcast. Talking happily about film for another week. Anything planned for the upcoming week, Andy? No, it's, we're on the kids' holidays at the moment, so it's busy at work, and I'm just generally relaxing at home. I'm still working through Gran Turismo 7, 
I'm, I'm still trying to boost my car collection. I'm still addicted to that. And I'm still realizing that I've got loads more video games that I've not got around to playing and feeling rather guilty about that. So I don't know. <laughs> I just, I need more time. I need more time. I need, I need a lockdown or I need to win the lottery. <laughs> you know what? There might be one due any day now, the way the figures are rising, but we'll soon find out. Well, I'm, I'm still not affected by it. So hopefully. I mean, it's looking more and more like I'm immune, but um, hopefully I won't get affected by the big COVID. Let's hope not. Uh, I've got half term. I'm not sure what to do with it, but I am going to catch up on some movies and I am going to relax. We'll see you again next week. This is the Film Files signing out, and the perps were uncooperative. Thank <laughs> you.